In your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 54. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 614. I think you can turn me down just a little bit, uh, Ryan. At least I feel like I'm getting a little feedback. Isaiah chapter 54. I wish I could give all the introduction I gave last week, and I cannot. Though it's kind of necessary to understand where we're going to be, or at least it would enhance what we're going to do this week. So I'm just going to give, give you a, a bare minimum um, background for where we're at in Isaiah chapter 54. And the Sundays at a glance inside the bulletin is off because I realized by the time this was all said and done after the bulletin, I'm not going to finish 54 this week. Uh, so we'll carry over chapter 54 a little bit into next week. It'll probably also include some of 55 but at least we'll start with 54. The introduction looks like this. The world has an incurable, desperate, critical sin problem. That's a part of the story of Isaiah, that the world has this desperate sin problem. That includes God's chosen people. That includes the nation that God chose, or the people that God chose to make into a nation, to be his own treasured possession. That includes Abraham has a desperate sin problem. Isaac has a desperate sin problem. Jacob has a desperate sin problem. Moses had a desperate sin problem. Joshua. Go through all the entire line. All of God's chosen people, this chosen nation, has this critical sin problem. But it doesn't stop with them. It also means God's chosen city, Jerusalem, has a sin problem. Jerusalem, also known as Zion, because Jerusalem is a city on a hill, city on a mount, Mount Zion. Jerusalem, this special city which is, has a prominent place in Isaiah's prophecy, they have a sin problem. David is the, is the most notable king in all of the Old Testament in the city, of, uh, or the city on the mount, uh, Mount Zion. David has that sin problem. It's pretty apparent if you've ever read the story of David. So you've got... A chosen people, a chosen nation, a chosen city, they all have a sin problem. So it's no surprise that the Gentile nations have a sin problem. All the Gentile nations, all the world cultures have a sin problem. Before Europeans, like those people from Portugal, came to this country and brought all of their baggage with them, Native Americans had a sin problem. This was not a pristine country before it was spoiled by European conquerors or missionaries or whatever you want to call it. They've always had a sin problem. Western Europe has a sin problem. South America has a sin problem. Any world culture, however remote, however pristine, however advanced, every world culture has a critical sin problem. I have a sin problem. And you have a sin problem. So that's where we start off, at least in today's introduction. The one and only solution or remedy to the sin problem is undertaken by the Lord himself. It's not going to, the sin problem isn't going to be solved by judges, kings, prophets, priests, sacrifices, animal sacrifices. The sin problem will not be solved by any of those things. God himself has to solve the sin problem if it's going to be solved. And so God... The Son, the Eternal Son, comes and becomes something He was not. He becomes a man, and He comes to solve the sin problem. We read about that, we've already looked at it in Isaiah chapter 49. I'll show you those two verses on the screen, which kind of summarize uh, 
the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, solving the sin problem, it looks like this. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant. So this is the Son talking. This is Christ talking. He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, the Father says to the Son, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The eternal Son of God not only solves the sin problem in God's chosen people and God's chosen city, the eternal Son of God also becomes a light to the Gentiles because he's a solution to every world culture's sin problem. And that is all prophesied in chapter 49 of Isaiah. The servant accomplishes his assigned task by offering his life as a substitute, as a sacrifice for sin. He died in my place, and I receive his righteousness. Because no matter what obstacle the son faced, he faced it obediently and in such a way that it always honored his father. And all of that is credited to my account by faith, and my sin and guilt was credited to Christ when he died on the cross. That's the heart of the gospel. And that's what is fleshed out in Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah says in chapter 53, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah chapter 54, where we're at, where we were last week, where we are this week, is giving us a picture of the servant's great success. How successful was the servant who suffered those things in chapter 53? That servant that went through the, uh, that was introduced to us through, through the songs of Isaiah. The servant then who, who died on a cross, but he saw his reward and he saw his offspring because he didn't remain in the tomb. The success is pictured in chapter 54. So let me read chapter 54 with you for you, and then we'll see how far we get. 54 reads, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will be spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will, be pe- and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your Maker is your Lord. The Lord of hosts is His name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer." The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. 
but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your your gates of carbuncles, I don't know how to say that word, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. And great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication from me declares the Lord. That's Isaiah chapter 54. Some some picture of the servant's great success who was humiliated in chapter 53. So let's talk about it. I want you to describe the mood or the tone of chapter 54. How would you describe it shortly, briefly? What word would you choose? And if you choose the word that I chose, you'll win. How would you describe the mood or the tone in 54? Victorious. Victorious. Good word. It's a victorious mood. What else? That's because Randy didn't have you stand up to sing. Everybody's like, what? (laughs) Sylvia. Peace? Peaceful? Yeah, peace is definitely a thing. In fact, we're going to talk quite a bit about peace. We're going to talk quite a bit about peace. Hopeful? Hopeful? Um, Hopeful in light of it's not happening now. So we're hopeful that God has made this terrific promise. But in 54, there's... it's. They're acting like it's already been accomplished, but because it hasn't happened, they're hopeful. Jason? Triumphant. Triumphant. Those are all good words, and you're all, you're circling around the word I've got. I've got the word celebratory. This is a a celebration in chapter 54. What the servant did in chapter 53 was so successful, there's this terrific celebration. Second question, why? Without reading the whole chapter back to me, what has just happened that has caused this victory, this celebration, this hope? How would you describe it briefly, shortly? It's kind of a theme we've looked at in other places in Isaiah. Carrie? Great compassion. That's going to be a theme in chapter 54. They've experienced great compassion. Uh, If you're experiencing the Lord's anger, you're not going to be celebrating. 
but they have experienced God's promise and ex- experienced God's great compassion. That's true, Cindy. Compassion, steadfast love, these promises of God. Obedience, they're celebrating the obedience of the servant for sure. Uh, that certainly explains why, because the, the, if the servant isn't obedient, if the eternal Son of God is, does not succeed in what he came to do, there's no celebration. There's no celebration. But what I've got on here is that there's a great reversal that has taken place. This is one of the themes in Isaiah, because Isaiah keeps painting these very dark scenes of sin, the desperateness of sin, the guilt, the shame, the condemnation, the judgment. That's all through Isaiah. And then somehow that scene turns into this great celebration. It's all because of the work of the servant. But the celebration is a great reversal has just taken place. Something most unexpected has just taken place. There are three motifs or word pictures. This plays off what Rich taught in Sunday school that are used in chapter 54. There's the motif of a, of a family, particularly a barren woman. There's the motif of a deserted wife and marriage. And there's the motif or the word picture of a beautified city, this eternal city at the end of chapter 54. We're going to look at those word pictures a little bit more next week rather than this week. But the question would be, why does God so often accomplish his will from impossible circumstances? Why are these, why are there these great reversals in scripture? And as a follow up to that, what would be some examples of a great reversal? Something that seemed impossible except that God did it. What would be an example of that? The walls of Jericho falling. It seems, it seems impossible. This city seems so fortified. And the Israelite army isn't doing anything more than marching around the city and blowing the trumpets, blowing the, the priestly trumpets a few times. Seems like an impossible situation. What would be other examples in Scripture of impossible situations? Abraham and Sarah. I mean, Lord, God makes these wonderful promises. I'm going and even changes his name from Abram to Abraham. From exalted to father, I think Abram, I didn't really check this, I'm going off memory. Abram meaning exalted father, Abraham, father of many. And I love the way uh, Ray Badger used to tell the story. He was a uh, chaired the Department of Missions up at Moody Bible Institute. He would say, in their culture, when you tell your name and somebody says, well, you know, you introduce yourself. What is your name? My name is Abraham. Abraham, that's a... Different name, you're not from around here. What does your name mean? Father of many. What's the next question? How many children do you have? Abraham says, none. I don't have any children. Who gave you the name? My God. My Lord gave me this name. What kind of a God gives a name like father of many? You have no children. From that impossible situation came a child born, Isaac. And Isaac... Bears his wife bears Jacob and Esau, and Jacob have I loved, Esau have I not. And from Jacob, twelve sons who become the twelve tribes of Israel, and God raises up this nation. Impossible, except it happened. 
And then those people go down to Egypt where they become slaves. And through ten plagues, God releases them only to find themselves backed up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army coming. Impossible situation. Except God says, be still and know that I'm God. Watch, my, watch how I will deliver you. And they pass through the Red Sea as on dry land. Another impossible situation. The Bible is filled with these stories that are seemingly impossibly solved. And God does that to answer my earlier question. Why does he do that? So that no flesh would glory in his presence. Saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. God puts himself in situations where the only solution has to be himself. Because if we had any inkling that we had any part of it, we would say, it'd be like the guy, I don't know exactly who this guy would be, but uh, the guy that played with Michael Jordan off the bench in some game, and Michael Jordan scored 50 points, and this guy shot two free throws. And he'll go his entire life saying, I'll never forget the day Michael Jordan and I scored 52 points in a game. (laughs) Which is a true statement. All through Scripture you have examples of this. Old and New Testament. Impossible situations, except God works it in such a way that brings glory to himself. This is a familiar theme in Isaiah. As Israel is blessed, all nations, all creations celebrate the great reversal and are similarly blessed. We've looked at that in Romans chapter 11. I'm not going to look at it again this morning. But that's a, a true statement all through Isaiah. As God blesses Israel, all the nations of the earth enter into the celebration. It's not only good for them. This is the time where I think we'll do the scripture reading. If I can find mine. If you will pull out in your bulletin that purple sheet. Let's everybody stand and read through this. This is an example of God blessing Israel and all the nations of the earth also celebrate. I need volunteers to read, but where you see it bold, everybody will read together. I will get you started. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You may be seated. So let me talk a little bit about interpreting Isaiah chapter 54. I'm going to make a statement that is not going to be a surprise to you, but it's somewhat as a surprise to me, though it happens enough you'd think at some point it would stop being surprising. And that is, as I attempt to interpret Isaiah chapter 54, I'm letting you know up front, I may be wrong. And even if I am wrong, the major points about God's character and how God saves and how God is in control of the situation, his providence, those lessons can be taken away even if I'm wrong on the shades of how I'm trying to deal with the content of Isaiah chapter 54. The choice, if I were to reduce it, is is the chapter more specific of Israel 
or should it be taken more allegorically and more spiritually? Now, I don't know if you know exactly what that second choice means. I'm going to explain it to you. And as I do that, as I try to give you a, a somewhat brief interpretation, kind of a spiritual interpretation, that it has less to do with Israel, the ethnic people, I know I'm not doing it justice. So if that's your position, you may think, you may come away saying, I think you've sold that position short, I think there are other strengths you didn't mention, and you're probably right, but if I were to try to explain both of those, we'd be in Isaiah chapter 54 about a month, and I don't want to spend that much time in the chapter. To give you this interpretation, I'm going to refer to a man named Edward Young. Edward Young lived from 1907 to 1968. He was a professor of Old Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He was a professor there, I believe he started in 1935, maybe it was 1936, until the day he died. He died of a sudden heart attack in 1968, and uh, so he he never retired from the job. He loved the job. He was an ordained Presbyterian minister. Edward Young was a Bible scholar among Bible scholars. His Old Testament uh, commentaries on Isaiah come in three volumes. He wrote, he, he lived Isaiah in, in many ways. He just immersed himself in the message of Isaiah. So he, had a lot, he was also brilliant on, a, on another level. He had a working knowledge where he could either speak or read at least 26 different languages. That's an amazing thing to me. Uh, So I've benefited a lot. I I refer to his commentary almost every week. Uh, I'm not trying to read all three volumes, but almost every week. He would say this about, he does say this about Isaiah chapter 54. In the present chapter, therefore, the prophet turns to the redeemed ones, the church, and speaks of its glorious exaltation. The people are no longer addressed as Zion or Jerusalem. The names of the city, which figuratively had represented the church, are now removed. And the prophet speaks of the spiritual glory that awaits God's people. The church is addressed as the barren one that has not born. When Edward Young looks at this passage about the servant's success, he doesn't see a redeemed Israel, an ethnic group, a people group, than inhabit a particular spot of land in the Middle East, he sees the church. That all this celebration is the church celebrating because the church had become the new Israel, the people of God, because the old Israel had been set aside through their unbelief and sin. He goes on to say, the prophet now gives the reason why the place of the church's dwelling must be enlarged. Namely, that she, the church is going to burst forth on all sides. Her seed will inherit the nations and repopulate desolate cities. It would seem that the intended meaning is on all sides, on all hands. The church is outgoing, vigorous in its missionary endeavor. The church will forget the shame of her youth and will no longer remember the reproach of her widowhood. Edward Young looks at this passage and he says, The triumph of the church... I mean, we've got the Melvilles. They're in Portugal. The church has sent them to Portugal. Brazil is sending missionaries to other parts of the world. That's the triumph of the church. It's the triumph of the gospel. And the church is growing and conquering ethnic groups and languages and and peoples and nations because Christianity is spreading everywhere. Edward Young looks at chapter 54. He sees a message about the church. 
I'll give you a couple more points of evidence from a spiritual point of view in Isaiah chapter 54. Verse 1 reads, Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. And if I have a spiritual view, what I'm going to do, I'm going to look at verse 1 and say, we're not talking about physical descendants, we're talking about children being born from above. Children being born by the Spirit of God. This is new birth into a new kingdom. That this is the church that is triumphing and enlarging and spreading out and conquering according to this view. One last point in verses 14 to 17. Where no weapon that is forged against you will prosper. That's similar to Jesus' language to his disciples when he tells Peter, Thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. The triumph of the church. Nothing can stop the church. There's no government in Washington. There's no conglomeration of world empires or nations that can stop the church. No weapon fashioned against the church will stop the church from being what it is. And so according to this view, the spiritual view, this is all about the church. And they may be right. They may be right. There's good. I, I learned, it. I don't know how many years ago, but it, I wasn't raised this way. But at some point I realized where good Christians disagree, both sides have a reason for believing what they do. I grew up believing where good Christians disagree, other people have become liberal and you're the only ones that really take scripture seriously. That's what I grew up believing. I found out that good Christians can disagree on something like Isaiah chapter 54. And it could be about the triumph of the church. And how people are born into the kingdom of God by the Spirit of God. And we're no longer talking about Israel. But that's not where I'm coming from. I think Isaiah chapter 54 really is starting from the, a starting point. It begins with Israel. And it begins with Jerusalem. Last week I gave you the concentric circles of interpretation and application. So I'm not going to belabor this point. But I think before we get to the church... What does Isaiah chapter 54 mean for the church? I think we have to start with what does it mean to Israel and Jerusalem. That's where we start. And so I'm going to start with what does Isaiah chapter 54 mean to Jerusalem? What does it mean to Isaiah? What is the basis of Israel's reversal? Or a second question, what is in place now that wasn't before? Why the celebration? Why has there been a great reversal? There are two right answers to this question. Why is there a celebration? What's the basis of the great reversal? 53. 53. You've got the servant of the Lord's success. That's the basis of the celebration. But there's a second reason buried in or implanted in Isaiah chapter 54 itself. And the answer to that would be in verse 10. My covenant of peace. My covenant of peace. And on that basis, there's been a great reversal in Israel's fortunes because now they have a covenant of peace. What are the results that follow the covenant of peace? This is all in Isaiah chapter 54. It looks like this. There's establishing a glorious city in verses 11 and 12 because of a covenant of peace. You've got children taught by the Lord because of a covenant of peace. You've got great peace. In the end of verse 13, because of this covenant. And you've got righteousness established. You've got people free from oppression, 
free from fear, free from terror. All because of a covenant of peace is in place. Follow-up question to this. Does that sound familiar to you, this covenant of peace? Does it ring any bells, especially in Old Testament literature, Scripture? Because this covenant of peace, this isn't the first time it's been mentioned, though. It goes by different names. In Jeremiah, it's called a new covenant. In Ezekiel, it's called the everlasting covenant. But it's the same features in both covenants. God writes uh, his word, his his law upon tablets of men's hearts. It's no longer this external thing. But all people will know the Lord because, because God has written what is true on the tablets of their hearts. It's a new covenant, not the old covenant. It's a covenant that provides and, and executes forgiveness and brings peace. If I were to show you scripture references, there's all kinds of references which we don't have time to look at. Jeremiah's New Covenant, chapter 31, 32, 33. Ezekiel's uh, Everlasting Covenant, or sometimes Ezekiel actually talks about a covenant of peace. Chapter 16, 32, 36, 37. This is a main theme in Old Testament theology, Old Testament, the Old Testament record, that it doesn't stop with Moses. Moses' law condemns. But there's a new covenant coming that's going to change everything. It will be a great reversal. This new covenant is going to bring forgiveness and peace to not only Israel. It will not only bring Jacob and Israel back to the Lord. It will also be a light to the Gentile nations. So we put all that together. This covenant of peace. And we need to revisit this word peace just a little bit because it's very important in Old Testament. Peace is, is, a, is a very comprehensive word. It's the word shalom. It's a common greeting among Hebrews to this day, shalom. It's like a hello, but it means so much more than that. It doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. In Scripture, peace means all good things come to you. God's blessings and favor rest upon you. You have peace. That's peace in Scripture. So what did we learn about peace before we got to Isaiah chapter 54? Because before 54, we'd already done 53. We weren't in 53. You have to go back a couple weeks. We were in Isaiah chapter 48. What we learned about peace in Isaiah chapter 48 was this. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Then your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would have never been cut off or destroyed from before me. If you had only obeyed and listened to the terms of Moses, you would know this peace. But Israel didn't. They were disobedient. They had a sin problem. Israel was idolatrous. And so the peace and the fulfillment of all that was promised to Abraham wasn't fulfilled because of Moses. It wasn't fulfilled because of that covenant. The chapter 48 ends with these words. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There's the promise of peace. Peace is outlined for Israel. But there's no peace for the wicked. And Israel has a sin problem. But Isaiah kind of works out this this concept of peace. It's one of the... One of the most important terms among many, behold, is a big term in Isaiah. But it's kind of worked out in Isaiah. How does peace come to a world that has a desperate sin problem? 
we read things like this, chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's a wonderful promise of peace. Starting with the introduction of the Lord's servant who becomes a man, who is born in human flesh. He becomes what we are, yet without sin. But we're not living in the reality of this government of peace, established perfectly, and perfect righteousness and justice. We've all got stories every day in the news about what is lacking, about what is failing. How it has not been entirely realized yet. And so you have verses like this. In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace. Whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. What do you do when God has promised peace, but our, our world, God's creation, isn't experiencing the peace like has been promised? You, put your, you keep your mind stayed on God because God has given the promise. He will see it through to completion. This word peace shows up in chapter 53. He, we've already read it once. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Peace comes because of the death of Christ. Then you've got chapter 26. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. That's a phenomenal promise. That's a phenomenal observation. I'm not sure if you can get it out of the ESV. Let me show you that same verse from the, I think it's the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our work for us. We've got a sin problem. It doesn't make any difference who God sends us, whether it's prophets, priests, sacrifices, judges, law. Whatever God gives us, we're going to mess it up. If we're ever going to experience the peace that God promises, he's got to do all the work. All the work. And that's exactly what he does. And that's exactly what Isaiah recognizes in 26 and verse 12. We've got peace because you did all the work. It's all on you. And we reap all the benefits. That's the promise of peace in Isaiah. Who's celebrating the peace? Who are the beneficiaries? Jerusalem. Israel. Jerusalem is the barren one, the desolate one. Jerusalem was shamed in her youth. Israel was reproached during widowhood. Jerusalem was like a wife deserted, grieved, and cast off. We'll look at that next week. But a great reversal took place. Well, before I get to the great reversal, an an important reference would be Lamentations 1. Jeremiah looks at the city of Jerusalem, which has been destroyed, and the temple's gone. And in Lamentations starts off how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. 
Jerusalem has become a widow. Isaiah says the same thing. Jerusalem is desolate, a barren woman. Jerusalem is like a wife rejected, a wife turned aside. But a great reversal takes place so that Jerusalem now, in 54, bears children. In Isaiah chapter 54, Jerusalem enlarges her tent all around. Israel, who previously was reproached, is called back and regathered by the Lord. This is all in chapter 54. Israel, who previously, Jerusalem previously, was like a wife deserted, grieved and cast off, now experiences everlasting love and compassion. This is a great reversal. Nobody saw this coming. It seemed impossible. But God did everything for his people to accomplish his purposes of redemption among those people, among that treasured possession. It looks this way in verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Title upon title. What is the Lord to Israel? He's your maker. He's your husband. He's the Lord of hosts. There's nothing he's not Lord over. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's your redeemer, and he's the God of all of creation. There's yet another way to look at it, still in 54. In verse 17, it says, This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. This is very interesting, because up and previously, before this reference, previously we were learning about the servant of the Lord. We were learning about the substitute, the stand-in, because Israel was failing everywhere they... every. Time they tried, they failed. And then we were introduced to the servant who was going to stand in for them, who was going to succeed where they failed, who was going to be obedient where they were disobedient, who was going to be steadfast. His face would be like flint to obey his father. And he succeeded on every score. He did that in 53, even to the point of death. And having succeeded, now the heritage of the servants of the Lord is they reap all the rewards of what the servant accomplished on their behalf. The servant succeeds where the servants failed. Is this for Israel only? We will find out in chapter 56 it is not for Israel only. He's also a light for the Gentiles. Gentiles will be included. We'll be in 56 sometime this summer. And then in light of what the Lord and his servant have done, what is commanded? What is commanded out of this great reversal? Sing, cry aloud, enlarge the place of your tent, do not hold back, fear not. It is commanding a celebration. In light of what God has done, celebration is commanded. Singing is commanded. Commandment. Commanded. Again, the question would be, is this for Israel only? Or is the church also commanded to sing and celebrate? What God has done on our behalf. Doesn't Ephesians chapter 2 talk about it, which I don't have time for? We who were dead in trespasses and sin, but God who is rich in mercy, through the person of his Son, extended to us grace received by faith, not of works lest any man should boast. There's no such thing as a church that doesn't sing. 
I've been in physical churches where there was very little singing. I remember we used to go to different Christmas Eve services. We'd pick a different one until we started doing them here. And some services, gatherings were phenomenal. I remember one particular gathering we went to, a large church, hundreds of people, packed shoulder to shoulder. I thought, this is going to be good. And hardly a soul sang the Christmas carols. It was embarrassing. The Bible doesn't know a church that doesn't sing. A church that doesn't sing is a church that doesn't know redemption, that doesn't know what it means that they've been delivered from sin, death, and hell. Churches sing because we have reason to celebrate. I'm way out of time. What are your comments and questions?